You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. We're talking about how it is that Jesus helps us bounce back in life. And he, of course, is the expert on bouncing back because, well, if you can bounce back from death, you can pretty much bounce back from anything. So I want you to think about um, a low point in your life. Uh, It could be something that you're facing right now, a current reality, or it could be something in the past. And the question is this, why did God allow you to go through that pain? Why did he allow you to suffer in that way? Did God have a purpose behind the pain? I would say yes. The Bible is very clear on this. One of the verses is the one we've been talking about in this series that describes God's purpose when we face a downturn. It's Isaiah 61, verse 3. It says, To give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So this verse summarizes some of what God is intending for us whenever life is hard. He intends beauty. His intention is to grow you on the inside to be a person of tremendous beauty, someone whose character and whose love for others literally turns head and draws attention because it's so unusual and so beautiful. And he intends joy. God wants you to experience the kind of joy that does not fade over time and does not need continual experiences to make it full. And then God wants praise. God wants your life literally to be a display case of his goodness. And for that to be kind of like a garment, it says a garment of praise, you know, a garment or a piece of clothing, that's really the first thing that people notice when they see you, what you're wearing. The idea is, is that as people see your life, what they'll really see is the evidence of God's goodness in your life, and you'll be a display case of his goodness to you. So how does God do this? Well, according to this verse, it's very similar to the way he grows a tree. Only these are not physical trees. These are trees of righteousness, changed lives. And the one who plants the seeds that grow these qualities is God himself. So what do these seeds look like that plant these trees of righteousness and these good things? Well, the seed that God uses to grow beauty is ashes. And the seed that he uses to grow joy is mourning. And the seed that he uses to grow gratitude or praise is heaviness. Literally, oh no, moments in life. Now, we're used to seeds looking very different from the plants or the trees that they result in. But this is a very surprising list of seeds. It appears that God uses the opposite of good to grow good in our lives. Why? Well, it's because it turns out we already have a beauty tree, we already have a joy tree, and we already have a praise tree. And they share the same root, and that root is not righteousness, that root is selfishness. Our beauty tree basically says, look at me, and usually it means look at me on the outside. Look at my physical beauty or how impressive I am. That's our beauty tree. Our joy tree literally says, do this for me. Everyone organize your life around me, and then I'll be happy. And our praise tree says, all praise to me. All the things that I've done in my life are because of my brilliance and my efforts. It doesn't display God's goodness. It displays how good we think we are. And the result is a tree of selfishness, not a tree of righteousness. So in order to plant a tree of righteousness, the old trees, along with all of the roots of selfishness, have to be dug up. 
And that takes time. And that is not a pleasant process. That is a painful process. So God's intention is to make the downturns in your life and in my life the point in time that marks your turn from ashes to beauty, from mourning to joy, and from a spirit of heaviness to praise. Literally, he wants the, oh, no, moments of sadness and pain in your life to be a seed that plants deep in your heart and grows in you deep-rooted patterns of righteousness to replace the patterns of selfishness. But this bounce doesn't happen automatically. Just because the seed is planted doesn't mean it's going to grow into a tree of righteousness. We have a very important role in this process. And so Jesus gave us six words that identify our part in this bounce-back intention that God has for us. And they all start with the same prefix, the same two letters, R-E. The prefix R-E means literally to go back. We first often need to go back and address the past rightly before we can really grow in the way God intends for us to grow. So last week we began by looking at the first R-E word. The word is resurrection. First, we need to go back and address our sin, which is the collective reason behind every downturn every individual fall. And then the next thing we need to do is go back personally, individually, and admit the truth about us that God wants to change. The word that describes that is repentance. The word repent brings to mind, you know, strange-looking people with big signs and angry looks, probably down at the pier. But that's not what the word really means. The word simply means to change turn around. Repentance is the point in time when you agree with God about the truth of what is wrong with you. That's the point of repentance. And the reason this is so important is because we do not bounce back until we first hit bottom. And the bottom is the truth. Balls don't just bounce in midair. Here's a picture of some balls. You don't see a ball heading down and then before it hits the ground it just kind of takes off. No, it hits the ground first, and then it bounces back up. The bottom of our fall is very similar. It's the point at which we bounce. And that occurs whenever we admit the truth about ourselves. This is what we mean when we say about a person, they need to hit bottom. Or they haven't hit bottom yet. What we're saying is, they're still denying some truth about themselves. They're still making excuses. They're still blaming other people. They're still, but they haven't owned what is true of them yet. And they're going to need to go through some more pain. They're going to have to hit bottom before they bounce. And even if the cause of the particular downturn or fall that you're experiencing isn't your fault, God still wants to use it to point out some truth about you that needs to change. The thing is, it's very hard for us to see the truth about ourselves. We can spot what's wrong with other people pretty easily, but we have a hard time seeing it in our own hearts. But God sees it, and usually other people see it. But you and I, we've either refused to see it or deal with it, or we've been totally in the dark. We just don't see it at all. And until you get to the point of addressing the truth that God wants you to see, you will keep falling. Now, you may manage a human-powered comeback from some setback, but God's just going to bring another fall into your life, probably a bigger fall. 
So admitting the truth is the bottom of the bounce that we're looking at in this series. Repenting isn't just a generic, I'm sorry, statement about your life. No, it's a very specific, aha kind of moment that turns you around. So what I want to do is kind of zoom in on the bottom of this V and look at what happens both before and after repentance occurs. There's some markers that precede repentance, and there's some markers that follow repentance. And in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul confronted a, a sin that was true in this church, a sin that they were not dealing with, and they were actually kind of covering up. And so he writes in this New Testament book in the Bible a letter to this church in Corinth, and part of its purpose is to confront this sin, and he's pretty direct. And then in chapter 7 of the second book of Corinthians, his second letter that followed this first letter, he writes back to comment on how they actually took that first letter and admitted the truth and repented. And he describes both the before and the after of their repentance, and this is very insightful. So before repentance, what always precedes legitimate repentance is sorrow. Sorrow. Not just any kind of sorrow, the right kind of sorrow. And it's talked about in these verses. So 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. Even if, this is the Apostle Paul writing, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so you were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So repentance, admitting the truth about ourselves, is always preceded by sorrow. This is why we currently say, I'm sorry, often whenever we've done something wrong. We just say, I'm sorry, comes from the idea of sorrow, the root of sorrow. But just because we're sorry, just because we feel bad, doesn't actually mean that we are repenting. Because our sorrow, as Paul described here, can go one of two directions. So again, the source of the pain that Paul is talking about is this first letter to the church. It was pretty direct, and it stung. It hurt. And therefore, Paul had a real concern about how they were going to process this sorrow, this pain caused by that letter. And the reason for his concern is pretty obvious. Whenever someone experiences pain, they don't immediately come to the truth about themselves. They often thrash about and try to come up with other reasons for their sorrow. And oftentimes, they end up getting mad at God. And that's not God's intention. And that was Paul was hoping this wasn't going to happen with them. But Paul is now glad because the sorrow caused by his letter did what God intends sorrow to do. It led, it preceded, and took them to the bottom, repentance. So there are two directions that are identified here that sorrow takes us, worldly sorrow or godly sorrow. So let's look at both. First, worldly sorrow is about the pain. That's the focus of worldly sorrow. It's all about the pain. The focus is on the pain itself and very little else. 
And as a result, there is no truth that's learned from this pain because the focus is just on the pain. All that matters is that we find a way to make the pain go away. And there's two basic ways that we try to make the pain, the sorrow, go away. We either numb the pain or we blame the pain. These are our two coping mechanisms with pain. We numb the pain by finding something in this world to make us feel better. Could be an experience, could be a relationship, could be a substance, could be accomplishment. But there's something in this world that we use to numb the pain. We blame the pain, which is the other approach, not by finding something in this world to numb the pain. We find someone in this world to blame for the pain. We get mad at the pain. And if we can't find any person that we can obviously blame for the pain, eventually we blame the one who's in charge of everything. We blame God himself. We get mad at God. Now, we do this numbing and this blaming because it helps ease the pain. You would think getting mad at someone else and blaming someone else, that's only adding to the pain, but it actually hurts less than admitting the truth about yourself. It is very painful to come to the point of total honesty with yourself. And we will thrash about blaming almost anybody else so that we don't have to come to the pain of, oh, no, this is true of me? So we will numb the pain. We will blame the pain. Both tactics focus our attention on our world, someone in our world or something in our world which is why it's called worldly sorrow. The focus is outward. It's not inward on me. It's kind of like deciding that the check engine light that's just gone off in your car is the problem and not the engine. You know, it says check engine light, but you decide that stupid light's the problem. So you start banging on the dash rather than popping the hood and looking to see, okay, what's the cause? What's really, what's really behind this? And... That's why worldly sorrow brings death. It doesn't fix anything. It only makes things worse, worse and you actually spiral down until it destroys things. The separation between you and God and you and others only grows. So what God intended in the sorrow to bring you, which is repentance, you have now used actually to push him away. And when you push God away, you usually push other people away too. And then guess what happens? More pain. It gets worse. Godly sorrow is different. Godly sorrow is about the truth. Worldly sorrow is about the pain. Godly sorrow is about the truth. They both hurt, but they have a different focus. The focus of godly sorrow is on what God wants to do through the pain. The focus is on my relationship with God and how I've broken that relationship. And in this search, we take the sorrow and we go searching for what God wants to change. We experience pain and we immediately know, or we eventually know, you know, God wants to do something in this. He wants to show me myself. And we go looking for that truth. To use my analogy, we pop the hood and we look inside. We try to figure out why is the check engine light going on? Why am I in pain? Now, sometimes it's obvious what needs to be changed in you. I remember one time the check engine light went off in my car years ago and so I just popped the hood. I didn't think I'd see anything, but certainly as soon as I popped the hood there, I noticed that the oil cap was missing. 
and oil had been squirting out the top of the engine, and so I filled it up with oil to the appropriate level, bought a new oil cap, turned the car back on, check engine light went away, problem solved. Quickest problem ever with a car. So sometimes that's what it's like personally. You feel the pain, and you pretty quickly know, oh, this is what's true of me. You admit it, you repent, check engine light goes away, and on you go. But usually, the check engine light goes off, you feel the pain, you pop the hood, you look inside your own heart, and you, you can't see anything. You don't know why. At that point, you probably need some input. You need some help from some people that know you and know God's Word. You know, if, if your check engine light goes on, you pop the hood and you can't see anything, what do you do? You go to the mechanic. You go to someone you trust who knows the owner's manual for the car and they know how to fix cars. It's the same thing with sorrow. If you're in pain, it's, it's really important to go to someone that you trust that actually knows the owner manual, knows the Bible for our soul, and has experience on kind of working it into life so they can help you. This is why it's so important to be a part of a church. In a, a church like this, you're going to find a higher concentration of people that can really help you diagnose the sorrow and figure out what might be going on and how you might be able to learn and grow from this, help you bounce from the bottom. But be very careful who you ask. Watch their lives to see if they put this stuff into practice, see if they really know the Bible. Now, how can you tell if the sorrow is worldly or godly? Do the tears look different? No. They look the same. Does, does one feel worse than the other? No. They, they both feel bad. There's two ways you can usually tell. First is you listen to the words that a person is saying. If their words are primary talk, primarily talking about what's happened to them and how it's not fair, they're still in the worldly stages of sorrow. They're talking about what's happened to them, not what's happening inside of them. Once they start talking about what's going on inside, and once they start talking about what God might think about that, even if they're upset with God, they're beginning to move from worldly sorrow to godly sorrow. So listen to what they say. The second thing is notice the emotions that they're feeling. Are they mad primarily about what's happening to them? If so, they're most likely still playing the blame game, pounding on the dash, trying to make the check engine light go out, talking about how unfair life is and how wrong people are and what others have done to them. Again, that's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is marked by a humility, not an anger, and questions about themselves, not about others. It's focused in. Now, it says here that worldly sorrow ends in the crash of death without anything changing inside. Things just tend to get worse and worse because God is committed for us to see the truth about ourselves and he will keep pushing pain to get us to see the truth. So life gets worse and worse and if we don't, eventually it destroys the good things in our life and eventually our life. It, the other one is godly sorrow though. It bounces like a Super Bowl. It leaves no regret, it says. What does that mean? What that means is, while nobody likes the pain, godly sorrow produces a change in our lives that we look back on, and we're actually grateful for the low spots in our life because we see how God has used those to change us. We're not signing up for new sad times. 
Nobody wants sadness, but we see the good that God brought out of that. And we don't have a regret about it. We have a gratitude about it. Now, let me say an important note on this in terms of helping other people who are going through downturns in life. Whenever someone is falling, whenever their life is going down, one of our instincts is to take away their pain and to cushion their fall. But that may not be helpful. In fact, oftentimes it is not helpful because if they don't actually reach the bottom, they won't bounce. So you've been probably wondering why I got a blanket up here if you're wondering what this is. So, <clears throat> so if I bounce this ball just on the concrete like this, see how I came up? Not all the way up, but pretty close to where it was. But if I drop it on this, what happens? It just stays there. It doesn't bounce. Now, if the ball had feelings, the ball would prefer this to this because this fall was cushioned. That fall was not cushioned. But without the bottom, without the hard floor, it's not going to bounce. And it's the same with us. If your definition of love, which is the common definition now, is to take away someone's pain, you could actually get in the way of the bounce that God intends. Now, you need to be kind, compassionate to people as they're going through hard times. There's some times where you need to help. But if you take away the pain, if that's your mission, then you are taking away the purpose of the pain because God intends them to become sorrowful. That's what it says, to become sorrowful as God intended. So if God says this person needs to be in pain, I better not step in and say, well, I'm going to take care of it then. I'm going to cushion the fall. I'm going to make sure they don't feel the pain of their choices. I'm going to stay in the way. And this is one of the challenges in parenting. Because as parents, we don't want our kids to feel any pain. But they learn and grow the way we've learned and grow. They have to experience some pain. Now, you need to protect them from certain kinds of pain. But if your goal is to cushion them and protect them from pain, then you're going to wonder, why don't they ever grow? Because they haven't experienced pain. Now, this is becoming an increasing problem, especially as our children move into adulthood. More and more parents are committed to their adult children not experiencing pain. And I understand it because I'm, I'm a parent. I don't want my adult children to experience pain either. But if we get in the way of them experiencing the reality of pain and the lessons God wants to bring from that, and we keep bailing them out again and again and again, then we just find ourselves wondering why this child will not bounce, why they won't grow. An increasing number of parents are providing kind of a non-ending cushion for their adult children. Literally, a free mattress at home to sleep on, to cushion all pain. And therefore, there's an epidemic of adult children in their 20s and 30s that will not grow up because we're too afraid of the pain they would have to feel to grow up. It's hard, but we can't get in the way. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. It's one of the most famous bounce-back stories that Jesus told. It's a story, really, of how we 
come to our senses and return to our Heavenly Father. And in this story, the son, one of the sons, became angry with the father and in rebellion left home, ran away from home, took a bunch of inheritance with him, burned through all that cash, and eventually, without money, life got harder and harder and then awful until he finally came to his senses and returned in repentance to his father. The question is, what caused him to come to his senses? This is the part of the story that's the bottom of the V, the repentance part. Luke chapter 15, verses 16 through 17 says, He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. So he'd finally found himself a job helping a pig farmer. And he was so hungry because his job paid next to nothing that the pigs, what it's saying is the pigs were eating better than he was. But no one gave him anything. He couldn't even eat pig food. When he came to a census, he had followed that. When he came to a census, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. Now, just to be clear, we use the phrase starving to death because, well, it's almost lunch and we're hungry. But this starving to death meant starving to death. This is how, this is how painful his life had become. Now, here's the challenge in our culture right now. Our culture sees the primary evil in this story as the man is hungry. That's what's evil, and we must do everything to make sure he's not hungry. But in this situation, that was the pain that got this man to see the real condition of his own heart and return to the Father. Now, hear me clearly on this. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying we shouldn't help people in need. I'm not saying we shouldn't be compassionate to the suffering of others, and we shouldn't ever help. What I am saying is we need to be discerning. We need to think before we put a cushion to ease someone's pain, is this really going to help this person or not? And that requires us to know more about them in order to really help them. God helps us come to our senses by allowing us to feel bad. If we're committed to a world in which nobody feels bad, nobody's going to grow. Nobody's going to see the truth about themselves and will be against God's purposes, which never works. There's a phrase I learned in my 20s that has served me well. I don't remember who said it, but I've heard it many times. And the phrase is this, God is more interested in your holiness than in your happiness. That phrase has helped me so much. Because the truth for me is I expect the opposite. I wake up every day still with my brain reset on the idea that God has put this day and this life together for me. And that the purpose of this day is that I might have a great day and might be happy. But actually, God says, today is another day for Bevan to grow. And depending on the situation, this might be a day of pain so that Bevan can see the truth about himself, so that he might become holy, which means might be like God, become more like God wants me to be. So this phrase has helped me reframe my expectations around what God actually intends and therefore does. And I found myself less disappointed and less angry at God because I understand what he's trying to do. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't like pain any more than anybody else. But it has a purpose. So before repentance comes sorrow. After repentance 
comes change. A few years ago, I was backing out of a parking spot in a, in a parking lot, and I got just part way out of the spot, and of course, and then I turned my back around. The car at that point didn't have, you know, the, the video camera, which is so helpful. As so I turned around, and I saw the person directly behind me in the, in the, you know, across the lane, backing up too. So I stopped immediately just to see what they were doing, and I could see they weren't turning around. And this was before backup cameras. They didn't have a camera. They were just coming back. So I put it back in drive and tried to get back in the spot as best I could, but I couldn't do it fast enough. They were just going straight back, and they smashed into the back of my car. So we both got out, looked at the damage, which to my car was ex you know, pretty bad. Their car looked like nothing had happened. They looked up at me, looked at the damage, said, sorry, got back in the car, turned it back on, and started driving away. So I did something I wouldn't recommend doing. I ran out in front of the car, and I, you know, they stopped, thankfully, because I'm still here. <laughs> got out of the car, and uh, I just said, you can't just say sorry and drive away. <laughs> There's damage. We got we to exchange information. And they're like, oh, okay. So I don't know if they were like, maybe they had seen, you know, because on TV you can see people say sorry all the time, and everyone's like, oh, okay. Maybe they thought, hey, let's try it with an accident. I don't know. We'll see how far this works. But the point is this. You can't just feel sorrow, say sorry, and move on. Repentance takes action. It deals with the wrong. John the Baptist said it best in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance takes place at the root level in the soul. That's this tree image we're talking about. Now, you can't look at the roots of a tree. I usually can't even look at the bark or the leaves of a tree and know what kind of tree it is. If it's a fruit tree, you just wait till the fruit shows on. Then you, oh, yeah, orange tree. The best way to identify a tree is by its fruit. The best way to identify repentance is by the results, by its fruit. Just because someone says they're sorry for what they did doesn't mean they have repented. Just because they're crying, just because they're sobbing, just because they're promising they will never, ever do this again doesn't mean they've actually repented. Be patient. Fruit takes time to grow. But if it's real repentance, it will grow eventually. Now, if you're the one repenting, don't just hang around waiting for the fruit to grow. This verse says produce fruit, not wait for fruit. So work on the fruit. Put the fruit into effort. How do you do that? Back to the passage we started with in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. The Apostle Paul lists a number of things that he saw that resulted from the letter that brought sorrow that meant the people were really repenting. And this really is a list of seven fruits that indicate a person is really turning around. They're really changing. They're really being honest about themselves, and God is changing them. So here's the list, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11. Paul says, see what godly sorrow has produced in you. So, okay, it's godly sorrow. It's not the worldly sorrow kind. This is, this is the real deal, and here's the fruit it produces. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, 
what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. So let's go briefly through these seven fruits of repentance. If a person is repenting, if you're repenting, and it's godly sorrow, this is going to show up. may not show up as a full piece fruit, but at least a bud. It's beginning. Now, in the New Testament, it was written originally in the Greek language. And so these are the English translations, but some of the Greek words have some pretty good insight into what this is talking about. So I'm going to be dipping into that a little bit. The first word is earnestness. What earnestness? The, the Greek word literally means speed. The idea is, is that when you become aware of the truth about yourself, you don't say, you know what, I'll, I'll work on that next month. You start working on it now. There's this earnestness. You, you don't push it to the back burner to take up at a later time. You take initiative. The other kind of sorrow, worldly sorrow, is usually about pouting and waiting for the other person to see how wrong they were. Godly sorrow sees the problem that they have as a barrier between them and God, so it must be dealt with as a matter of urgency. Now, there's this earnestness. The next one is eagerness. The Greek word is apologia, which is where we get apologize from. What this means is you give an account of what you did. You come clean. Now, the motive behind you coming clean is not to justify why you did it, not to explain the pressure you were under, and that's why you did it. Explain yourself. Try to make your sin look better. No. The eagerness is to dig out every root that you can find by naming it, by confessing it. Early in our marriage, my wife and I, I was the wrong kind of eager whenever we had a conflict. I just wanted the conflict to go away. So once it became clear that I wasn't going to win this argument, we were to stand still, as often happens, I would often just say, I'm sorry. And my wife would wisely say, for what? And then I would say, I don't know, all of this. <laughs> Can we just make it go away? Well, you can't just make it go away because you need to figure out. It's like looking at a root system saying, mm, make it go away. It's like, no, you have to dig it out. You have to get specific. And that takes time. So I had to learn how to take time to think, what did I do? And sometimes, because of the emotions, it just takes me time to figure out what I did. But when I can get specific, that means I'm repenting. I know what I did. Not just generally, I feel bad. Sorry about all that. No, here's what I did, and here's what I did, and that's what I did, and I confess it. The next one is indignation. The word means to cut off. The idea is, is that you want to cut this sin off. You don't want to toy with this sin at all. You have a disgust for this sin in your life rather than a secret longing for the sin. You see, we, we tend to have and develop our favorite sins. What I mean by that is we know they're wrong. We would prefer not to struggle with this sin. And we know that we should get rid of this sin. But we don't really, really want to get rid of this sin. So we think we can control this sin. We can manage this sin. It's kind of like keeping a baby boa constrictor in a cage. You know, we take the sin out like the baby boa constrictor. We pet it a little bit. But then we put it back in its cage. See, it's controlled. And then we pull it out, 
and we put it back in. One day we pull it out of its cage, and it's not a baby boa constrictor. And it strangles us, takes us. This is what sin does. It can't be managed. And whenever there's repentance, godly sorrow, there is this indignation. There's this, I got to get rid of it. I'm desperate. I got to get rid of this. I got to get the baby boa constrictor out of my house or it's going to destroy me. The next one then relates to that, and that is alarm. The Greek word is phobos, from where we get phobia. It means that I, I have a real fear of the danger of what this thing undealt with is going to do in my life. I don't think it's just, hey, everyone's doing this. I see this thing is going to kill me. It's going to destroy my marriage. It's going to eat up everything that's good in my life. So the question is, do you walk up to the line of this wrong and then kind of linger there? Or do you have a, a real fear? Therefore, you create a buffer between you and that sin. The next one is longing. Literally means you dote on. You know, when someone is doted on, the idea is attention is lavished on them. So how do you shine the spotlight of attention on a sin that you want to get serious about? Well, the best way I know is you tell someone else about it. You confess it to someone that you can trust, and you ask them to hold you accountable, to check in with you on this sin. Now, let me be clear about accountability. Just because you've asked someone to help you be honest about a sin doesn't mean they're going to be able to make you change. No, no one can change you. Only the power of the Holy Spirit through the gift of Jesus Christ can change us. And we're the ones that really have to be serious about this. But if nobody else knows about this, then you're probably not going to get the help that you need to really deal with it, especially if the sin has got a lot of roots to it. Other people need to know. The next word is concern. This means in the Greek language to boil. The idea is, is that your urgency on this matter doesn't wane as the pain goes away. This is one of the key differences between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow only lasts as long as the pain is felt. As soon as the pressure is gone, the pain is removed, the consequences are gone, then they're back to the way they were. Godly sorrow, because it's deep, keeps going on beyond the pressure. So one of the things I often say is, wait until the pressure's gone and see if this person is still working on changing. If they are, it's probably godly sorrow that brought them to this point. So how do you keep the urgency? How do you keep the, the boil, the, the burner going on dealing with this sin? Well, you make a plan, and you stick to the plan. What I've found is that if you're serious about anything in life, you'll have a plan for it. If you're serious about retirement, you've got a plan. If you're serious about education, you've got a plan. If you're serious about sin, you've got a plan. If you don't have a plan, you're not serious. So we've got to develop a plan. Last word is justice. What this means is you want to make it right. You want to make amends. Your concern is for the people who have been hurt by your sin. Worldly sorrow is completely oblivious to the wake of pain and destruction that sin leaves. All it feels is, I shouldn't be hurting. Godly sorrow says, I hurt because of this is what I've done, and look at the people I've hurt in the process. Godly sorrow sees the impact on others, and it seeks to make it right. So this is the seven fruits of repentance. The fruit of repentance does not grow overnight. So if you look at any of these and say, oh, man, that's okay. Dig up the root. Start gardening. 
and it will grow. If, if it's planted, then watered, then weeded, then in time, it'll happen. But as you work on the root of repentance, that's when God does the miracle of a bounce that's worth all of the pain. We're going to feel pain. Life is just full of pain. Don't waste the pain. Let's pray. Father, we pray, first of all, for those that we're in relationship with that are in pain right now. God, I pray you'd give us discernment about what to do to help, and in many cases, what not to do, how to not get in the way of what you're doing, but how to support and love as best we can. And then we pray for our own sin and our own pain. God, we pray that you would grant our hearts godly sorrow, that we would grieve rightly. You would keep us from continually numbing our pain or blaming our pain. You'd help us to see ourselves. And then in light of the truth of us, we would be stunned by your grace and by your love for us that is not diminished by how awful we can be. We long to grow into trees of righteousness that would be full of praise towards you. We pray for help with that. We thank you for your gift of forgiveness. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.